Peace School Color listeners, this is Mark Winston Griffith coming to you again from my backyard. And this is Max Friedman, also coming to you from Mark's backyard. The helicopter's still here too. Mark, you think we should give him a name? Uh, Bill. All right, so we, we've got Bill here uh, keeping an eye on us from the sky uh, as we bring you this very, very dangerous podcast episode. After Bill after Bill de Blasio, our mayor. Oh, right, yeah. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So BMC and our citizen journalism arm, Brooklyn Deep, have been working on a project to make sure folks in central Brooklyn have the power to take full advantage of the June 23rd primary elections in New York State and hold elected officials accountable around social change demands. It includes a dedicated webpage with candidate research, voter information, candidate debates, and interviews on our Third Rail podcast platform with smart activists who can help us better understand the political moment we're in today. Go to brooklynmovementcenter.org forward slash elections 2020. On this installment, we are bringing you the recording of the virtual debate between the candidates for the 56th Assembly District in Central Brooklyn. Of course, it was all done on a Zoom call, so you won't be able to hear the audience uh, milling about in the chat room. We, we hope you'll enjoy it, and of course, continue to check your school colors feed to see what we're cooking up. In the meantime, keep listening and stay safe. Peace. Peace, everyone. Welcome to Brooklyn Deep's Third Rail, where we tackle political and social change issues that impact the lives of Central Brooklynites. I'm Mark Winston Griffith, executive editor of Brooklyn Deep and host of Third Rail. In this episode, we continue with our special coverage of the 2020 electoral season with a town hall debate that was recorded via Zoom on June 8th, featuring the Democratic candidates for the New York State 56th Assembly District, Justin Cohen and Stephanie Zinnerman. And it's moderated by yours truly. For full election coverage, visit us at www.brooklynmovementcenter.org forward slash elections 2020. In the meantime, listen and enjoy. Peace. Good evening, everybody. My name is Mark Winston Griffith. I'm with the Brooklyn Movement Center and Brooklyn Deep. And welcome to this town hall debate featuring candidates for the 56th Assembly District in central Brooklyn. Um, the reason we're doing this is because not only do we obviously feel that local elections are very important, that with everything that's going on around in the world, um, we see the protests, we see the demonstrations, and that's an important part of social change. But what's also a big part is making sure that people have a chance to weigh in on policy, the people who represent them. And in central Brooklyn in particular, we know that there are a lot of people experiencing quite a bit of, quite a bit of distress and dealing with so much that's going on in their lives and around the world. Um, and so we wanted to make an extra effort to make sure that there is attention, the right amount of attention put on some of the local races that we have going on here in, in central Brooklyn. Without further ado, um, I want to introduce our two candidates and give them an opportunity to speak and, and start with Stephanie Zinnerman. Stephanie, could you just tell us who you are and why folks who are listening to this should be voting for you? Good evening, everyone. How are you? Great. Well, first, I'd like to say it is wonderful to be here. It's wonderful to be here this evening with active Democrats in our neighborhood. Sorry, the 
I don't know if you can hear the emergency vehicle going past, but I want to just say hello and and thank you to all of my neighbors, families, and friends for tuning in this evening to this exercise of our democracy. I am Stephanie, we're having some problems with your sound. We're getting feedback instead of your voice. How about now? Okay. There you go. You got it. Alrighty. So as I was saying, it's great to be here tonight with so many active Democrats. I, my candidacy is focused on preserving the rich legacy of Bedford Stuyvesant and Crown Heights. I have been an active member of this community, I would say for most of my life. I'm a third generation Bed-Stuy resident. I am a community activist, community advocate. I have worked and served in this community for the last decade and a half. And I'm really focused on answering a, a couple of questions. And one is, why are so many of our family members having to leave our community in order to receive high quality education and healthcare? I also wanna focus on why so many of our residents are unable to afford to stay here. And of course, on the homeowners who have not been able to maintain their legacy of homeownership. I want to work on, with my neighbors, a sustainable economy that allows our young people to intern at local businesses and people to become entrepreneurs and small business owners. And certainly, last but not least, I want to live in a community and I want to help build a community that is free from violence, all sorts of violence, even police especially police violence, and make sure that as a community that we are prepared for the next disaster. So, so many of you have worked with me to make sure that our schools are improved and my role as community advisory member at Boys and Girls High School, we were able to make sure that that school was out of the state hands and receivership. And we need to repeal receivership and actually go back to community control of schools so that we can ensure that our children receive the education that they deserve. We also need to work together to ensure that our healthcare systems, our hospitals, our community-based health clinics are all focused on wellness and not just dealing with the sick or hospitalization. If COVID hasn't taught us anything else, it certainly has taught us that we were not prepared um, in this community and we had too many underlying issues that were going to make living and recovering from this global health epidemic possible. So as your neighbor, um, as your servant leader, as the person who has walked hand in hand with you and marched hand in hand with you for over a decade, I want to take that activism to the state level, to the assembly, and work with other legislators, the other 149, to make sure that we have the resources and the opportunity for a better tomorrow in our district. Great. Thank you, Stephanie. Justin? Sure. Please introduce yourself and tell us why you think that we should be voting for you. Great. Um, 
Thank you, Mark, for moderating. And thank you to all of the host organizations for having us. I'm Justin Cohen. I'm running for assembly in District 56. Um, I have spent my career as an education policy expert, uh, nonprofit leader, community organizer, and writer. After about a decade in the nonprofit world, I realized that a lot of the things nonprofits are pushing for um, are, are disconnected from the grassroots energy in our communities. Um, and as a result, social change does not happen through that work. Um, so I joined up with a friend and co-founded an organization called Wayfinder, which sends cash resources directly to community activists working on the front lines of racial justice work. Um, that organization is now led by Nakima Levy-Armstrong, who is one of the leaders on the ground driving divestment from police in Minneapolis. Um, and I tell that story to say, my view of how social change happens um, requires an inside and outside strategy. Um, you don't just change laws by sitting in Albany and writing them. You have to work with organizations that are working on the ground um, to create the context for change. Um, so, for instance, since 2014, most of my energy and organizing um, has focused on police violence and ending mass incarceration. And I hope we can talk a lot about that uh, tonight here in Bed-Stuy, Crown Heights, and nationally. Um, and what I've learned from that is a big part of the reason that our communities don't get the investments that we need, whether it's public schooling, public health for our seniors, transit, um, or housing, which is one of the biggest concerns I hear from everybody in this community, is because we've spent too much money and resources investing in a violent police state. Um, so divest to invest has been the core message of this campaign since we started it. And I am glad that we are having a national and local conversation about that because I want to bring that lens to the assembly. I think moments like this require radical creativity and change. And I would like to bring a lens of radical creativity and change to our state assembly to push as hard as we possibly can in this moment to divest of the systems that harm us and invest in the ones that keep us safe. Um, when we started this campaign, we picked four values to drive all of our work love, joy, engagement, and accountability. And for me, accountability means making every person I encounter in this community uh, a part of who I listen to and who I bring into the political process. And I want everyone on this call to continue to hold me accountable for that if and when I get elected. Um, I don't want you to trust me. I want you to trust us that when we work across lines of difference in ways we maybe, maybe never have before, we can accomplish things that are maybe impossible or seemed impossible even months ago. So thank you for having me. Thank you, Justin. Okay, so thank you. We're gonna go on to the questions. The first one is going to go directly to the moment that we're in right now. And it's about COVID-19 and economic empowerment. So there's so much economic devastation due to COVID-19 in central Brooklyn and across the country. How would you prioritize and tackle economic recovery and ensure black Brooklynites are empowered during the crisis and after it ends? And we'll start with you, Justin. So we actually reached out to about 15,000 people via phone and text to ask them what folks thought was necessary for a recovery. And they mentioned five things. You won't surprise you. It was in housing, it was healthcare, education, um, reforms to criminal justice, and then businesses. And when we, we had a round table with a bunch of businesses in Crown Heights and Bed-Stuy, uh, a couple weeks after the crisis started, and we asked everybody who here got 
anything from the federal government in terms of small business loans? And the answer was zero. Um, so clearly the federal money is not getting to businesses in this community, specifically black businesses. Um, and so we need to think both within government and outside of government in terms of how to, how to make sure that our small businesses recover. One thing in particular is commercial rent. So I've talked to a number of businesses who are struggling to pay their own house rent, let alone their business, and they have to make those choices on a day-to-day -day basis. The vast majority of our local business do not have multiple months of cash on hand to weather this. And so adding the forgiveness of commercial rent to the sort of demands around canceling residential rent feels really important. I also know a lot of uh, specifically restaurant and food service businesses where they have thousands of dollars in back like violations for stuff that doesn't seem to matter, we should also forgive that and try to build some rotating capital funds outside of government to invest directly in businesses. Thank you, Justin. Stephanie? Well, when this began to happen, I called my friends and my neighbors. I had a conversation with the merchants on Tama, the Tompkins Avenue Merchants Association, the Bed-Stuy Bid, um, people who have home-based businesses, and asked them what their challenges were. A couple of weeks ago, I hosted on my Live from the Source show a conversation specifically about, about PPE loans and what other aid was available. And there were a number of people too that were on the show, Dewana Smallwood from Dewana Smallwood Performing Arts Center and Julian Tees who did receive um, loans. What happens is a lot of people did receive loans but they received loans from banks out of the country. So we have to hold our banks here, the nine that are in our district accountable. Every bank is responsible for a community re reinvestment act for small businesses and a number of people have had to crowdsource money from other places when these commercial banks are actually every day capitalizing over off off of the money that the residents in this community invest in those banks and so we have to hold them accountable talk to the people in the banking committee. If I'm elected, I certainly would like to be on the banking committee so I can make sure that they actually have to disclose who in our community that they're actually lending money to by zip code so we can hold them accountable. But our businesses are resilient here and they are working together in order to make sure that we as a community have strong economic empowerment and good businesses that are open post COVID. Thank you. Um, so just wanted to let you know that there's, there's some people who are raising their hand. I just want to let you know that we, we're going to get to you. Oh, I have to look. We're going to first finish the first round of, of questions, uh, the, first five round, the first round of five questions, and then we'll get to um, audience questions, okay? So um, we're going to be, I'm going to ask, these are individual individualized questions. So the first one is for Justin. Justin, as someone deeply interested in racial justice, redistribution of power and reparations in Central Brooklyn, how do you reconcile being a white man who has a track record of work mostly out of New York running to represent the historically black district of Central Brooklyn? So look, I'm white and um, I have spent 
a lot of my career working in and with communities on issues related to racial justice, as you have pointed out. And I arrived at the decision to run for this seat because the community I organized with, which is predominantly grassroots organizers in Bed-Stuy and Crown Heights and Flatbush around issues related to gentrification and police violence, um, supported that. Um, because we have been pushing the envelope hard on the ground on the issues that everybody in this community tells me are central to the survival of people namely being able to live here affordably and not getting pushed out and the impact of gentrification on violent policing from the state. Um, and when I talk to people I work with on those issues on the ground, there is a sense that our current politics does not represent the lens of abolition, does not represent the lens of decarceration, and that it is not happening because folks are used to sort of similar approaches to politics. And when I talked to people and said, well, so somebody should run for office in order to represent those views, the consensus was that I should go for it. And even though I was not an ideal um, necessarily messenger for the messages, that I was in accountability to those organizers and to the activists I work with, and that as long as I continued to be in accountability, that there would be trust there. Um, and so am I the ideal messenger? No, am I like, but I am who I am and I am pushing on the issues and I am, and I think I have a track record that shows that I do the work and I put the time in. Thank you. Stephanie. Yes. So you are, most, you are known mostly in Central Brooklyn for being a part of a range of civic organizations, political organizations that some would, be con would consider to be part of the political establishment. Um, Well-respected organizations, but still part of the political establishment. What would you say to those who believe in significant political change and fear that you represent the status quo. So one of the things I would like to say to people, no matter where I go, I'm very intentional about how I move and what space I occupy. And so when I came back to Bed-Stuy, I looked at the landscape and looked at who was making the who were the decision makers. So you go to the community board because that's where decisions are made. You go to your precinct council meetings because you want to know what, who the police are in your community and if they have been accountable to the community. When you come to a community you, and you call yourself a Democrat, you join the local Democratic club. So you find out if they're doing real work on the ground. And I know that I have been registering people to, to vote hundreds this year of just 16 and 17-year-olds, making sure that they have jobs as poll workers so that we have a next generation of Democrats here in our community making the decisions for our community. So as an establishment um, candidate, hmm, do I believe in legacy? Do I believe in the leadership of this community? I absolutely do. I am a civil life member of the NAACP, as Joan said earlier, the oldest and the boldest civil rights organization in the land. They've been around 100 plus years. Let's be very clear. As we move and try to progress, so do the people who don't want us to progress. So we have to remain diligent. That's the reason why I'm always registering new people because Hi. it may look like we're not making progress, but we are making progress because think about where we would be if we were not here holding the line. Thank you. And uh, just to make sure things are working. Stephanie, you did hear Antonine, right? Uh, I did hear her. Okay, That's, cool. Yes. Thank you. And thank you for respecting that. Um, I'm going to ask a question about housing. And I want to, I want to, I want Stephanie to respond first because Justin has responded first the last okay. two. 
Um, in 2018, current state attorney general Tish James released a list of the worst NYCHA developments in the city, yes. which, is Albany, which include Albany houses, with Armstrong houses, and Weeksville Gardens. Yes. We use state government to center the needs of people living in low income and public housing or often ignored and not invested in. Do I believe, is that what you said? So I, how, would you, um, how would you use state government mm -hmm. to center the needs of people living in low income and public housing who are often ignored and not invested in? Okay, so I think most people know that I grew up in NYCHA housing, so it is at the forefront of my, my, my attention. I was in Kingsborough Projects this weekend having conversations with people about what their concerns were. It absolutely has to be a number one priority, and it is my number one priority. NYCHA and our education system and our healthcare system are all in crisis. And so I've said to people who hold a seat right now and people who I hope to be colleagues with later on this year that this has to be the focus. COVID has taught us that if we do not take care of the basic needs of our people, we cannot progress. There's no other agenda that can happen if people are hungry, if they are ill, if they are not properly housed. We have the resources to house people properly, but we have a moral dilemma because we have a value system about who gets to live where and how they get to live. And that has to stop absolutely right now. So that is my focus and my number one priority. Oh, thank you. So we're going to, oh, sorry, Justin. Same question. Same question. Yeah. Um, you, you need me to repeat it? No, I think I, I can. Okay. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Um, so shortly before uh, social distancing started, I had a brunch with all the seniors over at Kingsborough Houses, and I met a lot of folks who, um, who told me not just about sort of the challenges that are specific to NYCHA, but specific to how this city treats its elders and treats people who have contributed to the city. I mean, I met a woman who was, worked for the, for the mayor's office for 30 years and now lives in NYCHA and is not getting response to any of the tickets she's filing and pays $500 out of pocket every month for her medication. And this is just indicative more broadly of how we treat people in the city, how we treat our elders. Um, and so when it comes to NYCHA, it's an intersection of issues. Um, and, you know, it's obviously the condition of the housing itself. And we should absolutely raise taxes on the wealthy in the state to pay for improvements to NYCHA and a whole range of other investments that we have not fulfilled to communities over the years. But it's not just the overall fundamental conditions of the facilities or the way we treat the residents living there. It's the organization itself, which has a fundamental tension with its residents. And we need to change that dynamic. And finally, like I, you know, like I live a block from Kingsborough and there was a police killing there on Tuesday night. And we're not talking about that, right? We had a vigil on Thursday, which was beautiful. And a couple hundred people came out um, to, to give, give lift up this young man who was born there and died out there. And those issues of police violence intersect with our public housing because that, that complex is over police. There are police driving through the streets every day. And I see it. So we need to discuss those intersections and think about that in policy. Thank you. So we're going to move to the next issue, which is health. 
again in this moment of, of COVID. Obviously, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. At least 25,000 people have died in New York City alone, including many elders in nursing homes and members of the Black community. Was the crisis dealt with appropriately on the state level? Did you say yes or no? And why or, and if it was, why not? Or I should say, why or why not? If elected, what would you do to ensure that our community members are as safe and prepared as possible to tackle this disease? The budget for New York City hospitals um, was cut in the most recent budget. Do you support this? And, ask, and if you want me to repeat the question, I can do so. I know it was a long one. Who's going first? Uh, sorry. Um, so you're going to go first, Stephanie. Okay. So no, I do not support any cuts to health care. We absolutely need to fund health care as our top four priorities in any budget, along with education, economic development, and housing, and then we could take care of the rest. Essentially, if people have those things, they could figure out the rest of their lives. So we need to invest there first. But one of the first things that I would like to do, and I'm glad that Justin was talking to seniors because I would invite them to join our Age-Friendly Neighborhood Initiative, which is a wonderful group of women who live here and who advocate for their rights um, and are interested in training others how to advocate for their rights as well. The other thing that needs to happen is that I would like those individuals to be a part of our volunteer ombudsman program so they would have the responsibility and this is actually in the state regs to monitor our hospitals our nursing homes and and those facilities would be accountable to that local volunteer group about what's happening do i think the state did everything perfect in that instance absolutely and we were not prepared for what was happening and so that is the reason why i wrote to the governor and that is the reason why attorney just Attorney General Tish James is now a partner in monitoring hospitals, but we also need local folks to, mo to monitor what's going on to keep our state legislatures focused on our issues. Community, we know this. When we make noise, when we fight, we win. Time. Not keep our eye off the prize. Thank you. Justin? Justin? So, yeah, sorry. Um, so to answer the top question, which is, did the state um, get the response completely right? The answer is no. Um, and I think there are two places where there, um, where there were significant misses. Number one is PPE and testing. Um, there were obviously completely inadequate testing sites, specifically in Bed-Stuy and Crown Heights until very recently. And I think that is a manifestation of broader racial inequality when it comes to the access to healthcare. Uh, and we need to talk seriously about what that looks like because if we have another crisis like this, I don't wanna to talk to the folks at Woodhull Hospital until have them tell me they're building a GoFundMe for PPE, which is exactly what actually happened in the first two weeks of the crisis. Um, so number one, and that extends by the way, not just to hospital facilities, but to nursing home and long-term care facilities. And that's probably the second area where the state had a completely inadequate, and I would argue dangerous response because the governor didn't even know until a month into the crisis that people were being released from, a, from intensive care back to nursing facilities and long-term care facilities which where the highest preponderance of cases in spread were. And not to mention that a lot of the essential workers who work in those facilities don't have guaranteed sick leave. And so we have this huge range of problems with state policy that prevents us from actually 
like dealing with these problems. Um, so I think, you know, to, we will hopefully not have another pandemic like this, but I think we should prepare Time. as if we do, we might um, and get those things right. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> All right. And so we're going into the last of the questions that are coming from us and we'll, we'll switch very appropriately to the audience. So my last question um, is around the police. In the wake of racist, in the wake of the racist police murder of George Floyd, Minneapolis city council members expressed their intention to disband the police and invest in community-led public safety. Minneapolis now leads the nation in reimagining community safety on the government level. Do you support reform? Do you support def defunding or abolishment altogether of the system of policing and incarceration? If so, what steps would you like to take? Let me start say that again. What steps would you take to bring New Yorkers towards your vision for the future of police and prisons? Please provide specific ideas. What specific criminal justice legislation would you fight for? Ladies first. Sorry. We're going to first. My bad. Um, uh, Justin, we'll start with you. So in 2014, after Mike Brown was killed, I joined up with a group called Campaign Zero to develop a platform for police accountability. And I did a ton of research on the ways in which police contracts intersect with local and federal and state laws um, to prevent police accountability. Um, in the time since I did that work and I've been working deeply on these issues, I have come to the conclusion that reform does not work um, and that you cannot reform a system that was fundamentally designed to oppress people. And so I think there's a deep, rich tradition of abolition in this country and I identify as an abolitionist when it comes to policing and jails and prisons. Um, that said, I do understand that that is a radical position um, and that not everybody in this community supports that position. And I understand that, but I do think we need to have a radical lens if we're going to take this as far as we need to go um, in this moment. And so at this, at this particular moment, I think defunding the NYPD by a billion dollars is absolutely something we need to do. It can be done more or less by cutting overtime um, and a few other smaller programs. And I don't think anybody should be afraid of that. We obviously need to pass um, 50A at the state level to, re or re I'm sorry, repeal 50A at the state level to get rid of police secrecy, get rid of immunity for officers that are protected by a law that says just because they're quote, doing their job, they can't be held accountable. Um, and you know, beyond that, like we, we just, the city just invested or just agreed to invest $10 billion in new jails after the mayor said he was going to Time. We should invest that money back into communities, not jails. Thank you. So I'm going to take a minute to lift up the people who are members of the 81st, 79th, and the 77th precinct. If you could raise your hands, because we have already in this community invested in a model for self and community policing. And that is standing up in those meetings and saying that we, this, is the, this is what community peace policing looks like in our community and demanding that of those inspectors. And when they can't imply, making sure that they are no longer operating in our community. 
we have invested in SOS, Save Our Streets, and people who have been trained in de-escalation, people who have been trained in conflict resolution. We need to invest more in those organizations so that they're not confined to just a catchment area, but that they could actually have influence block by block. Because in addition to the horrific, the horrific and let me just say historic police violence that black and brown communities have endured, we do have community and domestic violence that we have to deal with at, 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 as well. And that's the reason why, you know, 911 is always, we're always calling 911. So we have to deal with both. But if we invest in restorative justice models and community policing models and save our streets and other organizations who are experts in that. And the other thing I would do, let's pay them to train the police. The police should not train themselves, right? Let's have these other organizations train them so we can ensure that it's transparent. We know what's going into the to the training and we know that it's about de-escalation. Also, I've been endorsed by the auxiliary police. They don't carry weapons. We want to make sure that that our young people can Use that as a volunteer or um, opportunity to help police our community. And of course, I support all the legislation around eight can wait. Sorry. I um, rebuttal on this one. Yes, you, you are allowed to have a rebuttal. So, so when Saeed Vassal was killed on, at the corner of Crown and Utica in 2018, it wasn't community police. It was a unmarked car with four members of the strategic response group, which is set up for quelling rebellion and anti-terrorism after 9-11. None of them wore uniforms and they got out and they shot him 10 times on the street. This is a bipolar immigrant black man who got murdered on the street by our own police force. That was not community policing. And so I think it is, you know- You said 1984? I'm sorry? Me, please, do, please, year do was not, it? please do not cross talk, oh. allow, allow him to finish. And then you can respond afterwards. This was two years ago, April 4th, 2018. So, so, so we can do everything we you know, want to talk about community policing, but that doesn't stop other branches of the NYPD, whether it's counterterrorism or strategic response from coming into our communities and doing harm. Um, so, um, you know, as I, you know, the group that put out eight can't wait, I've, I mean, I've worked with those folks for many years and I have to be honest, like, I don't, don't think it goes far enough. And I think this is a place where we have to be more assertive. Well, I'm, you do know that right now, oh, oh. the, oops, I'm sorry. No, no, I just want to make, this is a, your, this is a rebuttal, uh, Stephanie, is that what's happening? Hello? Okay, Stephanie, we, we definitely... Something happened to your mic. I can barely hear you. How about now? Okay, now you're good. Okay. Okay. So I don't want to take the away from that one incident. I have grown up with racism. My ancestors were brought here under a racist ideal. So I absolutely know that racist people exist in the police force, and we have to eradicate that. So that's not the issue. The issue is all of us have to call that out when we see it. We have to go to the courts and demand that those people are prosecuted. And sometimes that means for those of us who can, taking off from work and going down there and disrupting the streets just like we've been doing for the last two and three weeks until people are in jail. We cannot let the pressure off of that. And I'm not saying that 
community policing is going to automatically tomorrow address that. What that's going to address is going to address the low-level crimes so that we are not dealing with 911 and police in our streets. A Tulane, Tulane Law Review just said, racism is so ingrained in people's psyche, you can't train it out of them. So the only thing that we can do is lessen the contact with our police, which means we have to have other models so that we don't have to call them. And so that when they're in our community and they're not supposed to be, we know exactly how to go after them and get. Okay, thank you. Now, thank you to both of you, Stephanie and Justin for uh, answering all those questions. I wanna take a, a mini break at this moment to encourage folks to drop in their questions. I know some of you gave us questions before this now you still have an opportunity to drop in your questions. We're going to do our best to get through them, to get as many as possible, and also group some of the similar questions together. So we're going to get to our next round. And um, I'm going to ask Antonine to start feeding me some questions. So um, there's one question that's anonymous, and it says, what would you implement to bring Restoration Plaza back to a thriving community asset since as of today it's underutilized? And I'm assuming they mean as of today as pre-COVID-19 because everything outside is underutilized these days. Why don't we start with you, Stephanie? Well, Restoration Plaza is due for a revitalization. There is a plan on the books right now to... Stephanie, we're hearing feedback on your mic. Yeah. How about now? Okay, you're good now. Okay. To reconstruct the plaza and add small businesses, more incubator spaces for small businesses, um, to re-envision the Billie Holiday Theater so that more people can enjoy art and culture in that space. And there's a training place for the young people in our community to learn about the arts and work in the arts, um, as well as have a union training center so that people can learn a trade and have access to a good union job. That is a project that we cannot afford to let fail. And I know a lot of people visit Restoration. They have a lot of ideas. We need to have a local community development council that actually works on all of our big count, um, um, all of our big projects so that we are ensuring that economic development comes to our community and stays in our community. Thank you. Justin? I'm not going to lie that Applebee's is one of my guilty pleasures, so, so I still enjoy going there. Um, you know, I think that this community, um, one of the richest parts of it is how um, vibrant the creative economy is and how vibrant the non-traditional quote-unquote businesses are, whether it is musicians or artists or cultural creators or curators. And it strikes me that Restoration Plaza um, like Weeksville, like other arts organizations in the community, 
is a perfect hub for that creative economy and that we could be having incubator space there. We could have um, art space. We could have um, youth events. I mean, there's a whole range of, of ways to cultivate the extraordinary creativity of, the, of our neighbors here. And I think that would be really, really powerful. Um, I also think we need to do some creative things with open space. Um, COVID has opened our eyes to the fact and reminded us of the fact that in, you know, the, between the 20s and the 60s, um, planners made sure this community did not have a lot of open space. Um, and I think of the, you know, streets adjacent to restoration and to make sure that um, we are using that and potentially repurposing street space for public um, utility, whether it's play space um, or creative space for young people. Um, I think we should also think about that um, and then, you know, just to take the small business point further, I think that there that, that we need to think creatively about building rotating loan funds here for small businesses. And I think it would be useful to, to you know, Stephanie mentioned this earlier, but pulling together the banks that finance businesses in this community and making sure they're involved in funding local businesses and making sure that local businesses have an opportunity to thrive. Thank you. Antonine, what you got for us? Yeah, we've got, um... This is from Jeremy Friedman. I'd love to hear from both candidates about their relationship with a Green New Deal. What ideas and perspectives do you bring for integrating environmentalist and climate change mitigation strategies with a vision for jobs, sustainable infrastructure, and justice? How can this national and international vision be brought to the local level in central Brooklyn? Justin, you go first. Um, so I love this question because I think this is an issue where um, you can do something positive and it affects multiple communities at once. Um, so uh, my, a friend of, of mine um, who I know folks, some folks here know, Michael's on the board of the Brooklyn Solar Co-op and they just repurposed the old army terminal down on um, uh, down in Bay Ridge to build the largest community owned solar farm in New York and probably the country. Um, there's no reason we can't do things like that, re repurposing roof space, repurposing open space in this community and things like that create jobs, reduce our dependence on, on fossil fuels um, and, and create opportunities for um, creative financing of local businesses and local efforts um, at uh, making our energy cleaner. Um, and you know, so, so we need to think about cooperatives around energy, um, sort of like the Brooklyn Movement Center is thinking about food cooperatives um, so that we can, um, so that we are actually uh, building ways, like building people power while building actual power. Um, the other thing I will say is um, when it comes to the Green New Deal, I think one of the great things about it is jobs. Like we, in the post-COVID world, we need every investment and opportunity we can to create new kinds of jobs that will live and thrive after this. So whether it's maintenance of solar, um, whether it is community farming, whether it is work on coastal resilience, because not too far from us around the coast in Brooklyn and Mill Basin, Canarsie, Red Hook, we're gonna experience tidal flooding on a daily basis within a generation. So we need to seriously think about not just investments in getting ourselves off of carbon and creating jobs for doing that, but making sure New York as a, physical, as a physical place is resilient. Yo, Mark just likes. I don't know who like asked this question, starts. but I love this question. We have so many great opportunities that have already started incubating here in the district. We have 32 community farms between Bedford Stuyvesant and Crown Heights. We have the project that's coming up at the Sumner Armory, um, the reimagining of Cape Pool as a as a as a 
multiplex um, with solar panels to give us an energy. In our schools right now, we have hydroponic labs. Well, not right now because schools are closed. Hydroponic um, labs. And for everybody who's been a part of the Coalition for the Transformation of Interfaith, you know that that entire envisioning was about the Green New Deal and ensuring that we could grow our own food for the patients, healthy food, so that we don't have to eat at Applebee's, that we can have locally grown food, supporting our local food co-ops. Um, there's just so many great opportunities that are happening right now. And what would be, what, what we need to do is make sure that all of those groups that are operating in a silo, our community chefs, our community-based farms, our schools, we need to have a Green New Deal Council here so they're working in concert to make sure that we get the best deals on those solar panels that we're going to buy and, and those for those green roofs. And of course, restoration in its imagining needs to be the model for what, what Green New Deal could look like in our community. Oh, wait, did I forget Broward Park? And what's happening with the Friends of Broward Park over there? Wow. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Um, so also, uh, again, you are free to ask individuals questions. Um, and we will make sure that if I ask one person a question, that we ask someone else a question specifically as well. Um, where are we next? Uh, so, uh, so there are a lot of questions in the chat, or not in the chat, in the Q&A about gentrification and specifically about Justin. And, I, and so I want to, there's one question for Justin I want to lift up. I'm not going to ask the others. This one I think has more context than the others. So this is from Stephen Clunas. Question for Justin. I'm a 39-year-old Black male entrepreneur from Bed-Stuy. My community has been manipulated and taken advantage of by external gentrifier, external investors, gentrifiers, and developers, among others. Some of this influence blatantly seeks to take advantage of the community, while others, posing as allies, reflect a quote-unquote savior complex and want to tell us how to improve. With political mistrust, voter disinterest, and overall morale so low, how do you intend to make inroads and inspire this community? It's a valid question. And when I talk to neighbors, um, you know, the violent, culturally destructive effects of a generation of gentrification is probably the number one thing that comes up. And the fact that I am white and that I wasn't born here probably exacerbates the way those conversations play out when I'm involved in them. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, they're, they're, there are serious conversations we need to have to have about outside investors in this community. I've been working on issues related to deed theft and third party transfer. I was a part of the Save 227 Duffield campaign, was at, which was at once about sort of the legacy of black home ownership in this community or in this borough. But broadly and, and more contemporarily, it was about the effect of predatory financing and development on central Brooklyn. And families that have had homes for generations are literally having their wealth stolen. I mean, we call it deed theft. It's really wealth theft. Um, because what happens is people take homes, they develop them, and then they take all of the value out of the home and the people who have lived here for generations um, get that stolen from them. And that is a pattern of historically, like being the plunder historically of black communities in this country. So um, I think that trust is earned. 
Um, and I think there's a difference between the be, like being a gentrifier and being a neighbor. And I think that there's a real challenge for a lot of new residents of this community in, in finding a place in that distinction. And part of my work has been actually trying to build those bridges and trying to have conversations and um, relationships across lots of lines of different difference. Time. And I think that's important. Antonine, do you have a question for yeah. Stephanie? Cool. Yeah, well, I don't have a question just for Stephanie, but for both candidates, so maybe Stephanie could answer first. For both candidates, what is your position on charter schools? What's my position on charter schools? Well, I am the mother of a 33-year-old, and I have always believed in parent choice. Is that echoing too much? I hear a lot of echo. Right, we, it's all right. You can keep okay. going. And yeah. I believe in parent choice. And so when we look at our district and we look at where parents choose to send their children, we have to make a decision. We have to respect that decision. Today I got word that a school that I support, Ember, Ember um, Charter School, um, Brother Rafiq, actually received the word from the regions that they're going to be allowed to have a high school. Now, let me tell you why that's significant. I had a conversation with two students from his school who are now high school students who were not able to go continue with, with them, who literally are having a horrible high school experience, exposure to drugs and sex and all kinds of things they shouldn't be exposed to. And another one was arrested and racial profiled one week into the school year. And so I am ecstatic that they have the opportunity to stay in our district and continue to be nurtured by a school community that loves them. Do I support every charter school? Heck no, because we've got serious issues of people coming in, wooing our students, and then when they don't make the grade, kicking them back to the tr traditional school um, when it's time, um, once they are able to get the funding and, and send them back by November. So. Yeah, I, I, this is a complicated issue. I mean, my mother was a public school teacher and I spent a lot of my career in education. And I'm also, my, my grandma grew up in Brownsville, so I'm like hyper aware of the very specific history in this community of community empowerment in schools. And so, um, you know, there is a, like, there are, like charter schools are the primary mechanism that like are available to like community-based organizations to have control, community control over their own like education. And I think that's a powerful thing. And I think that, you know, to Stephanie's point, groups that have availed themselves of that power are doing great things with it. And unfortunately, the vast majority of charter schools in this state um, and in this city are not that. They are more or less chains that operate with severely anti-Black disciplinary policies that exacerbate the school to prison and the school to deportation to prison pipelines when it comes to immigration and immigrant communities. So I think we have to have a nuanced understanding of the charter school situation. It is not cookie cutter. It's like saying, you know, for me, when somebody asks me like, do you like charter schools? I'm like, do you like restaurants? Like some of them are, some of them are great, but I wouldn't go to all of them. Um, so I think it's important to actually have a really nuanced conversation about this. I see most of the conversation about it happening though, frankly, being very binary and not terribly interesting, unfortunately. Thank you, Justin. Antonine?
Sorry, y'all. I was on mute. I just want to say we have a lot of questions that are um, that duplicate the same sort of issue. So if folks do have other questions, I see that there are 163 of you. So if you want to ask some questions, uh, please do. And in particular, we're looking for a good question for specifically from you all to Stephanie. So um, I'm going to lift up this question from John Reynolds. I'd like both candidates to address the question of food security in our community. Currently, the cost of fresh produce and similar healthy ingredients costs more, than more in the store in our community than three subway stops away. What actions would you take in the assembly to ensure that affordable food is accessible in this community and not only in communities where gentrification has already pushed people out? And let us start with uh, Justin on that. Yeah, um, so when the COVID crisis started, um, I was working with one of the groups I organized with, Equality for Flatbush, to build their um, mutual aid project, which both gave direct cash investments to families that had immediate needs, and then also a, a food delivery service. And I, my, my cell phone was the hotline for this for like a month. And so I ended up talking to tons of people who were experiencing not just the normal levels of food insecurity, but now like severe supply chain shortages. So there were folks I talked to in our community in Brownsville and East New York who said I, they couldn't find like any fresh produce within a mile, that they couldn't find cleaning supplies within a mile. So these not only, I mean, these issues are only being exacerbated now by this unique context um, that we are in. Um, in terms of the assembly's role in creating um, food security, I think it's an interesting question. I think, um, I think we need to create some grant programs potentially to build um, local infrastructure for food, whether it's farming, um, whether it is food cooperatives. Um, I think that re, you know, diverting some, some of the resources we currently put into public safety and policing into things that actually keep us healthy and safe would be extremely valuable. Um, I also think making like making it easier for um for um you know produce and healthy food is expensive and, and the profit margins are really tight and so we um so we need to actually think creatively about maybe loan forgiveness or other kinds of unique investment programs uh, at a hyper local level to make it viable to um to serve things that are maybe more expensive hello Oops, Stephanie, sorry. Yes, I love this question also. Um, I was endorsed by Eleanor's Legacy and um, I was in a conversation, as a result of that, I was in conversation with Senator Metzka, who is the chair of the Agriculture Committee. And I am so excited about the suite of bills that she just passed. And my job is to make sure that those bills that she put fourth for the central reason of New York, support urban farms. I mean, childcare for, for um, farm workers, um, education, more um, investment in uh, um, fresh produce, um, produce um, and, and assuring that they can feed the local systems. When people, and I don't know if the gentleman who answered the, um, who asked the question is aware of Hattie Cartham on the corner of Lafayette and um, Marcy, but you literally can go there and get fresh eggs and you can, and you can get um, fresh food and they take EBT. A lot of our markets now take EBT. And I want to say something about that. 
there's a lot of shame and I hear kids still teasing people about um, having an EBT card or their parents having one. But let's be clear, Shirley Chisholm from our community went to Congress and they thought that they were pulling the wool over her eyes by giving her the agriculture because she came from an urban environment and she created food stamps. And we are still, communities are still benefiting for, um, from that act Time. today. So don't be afraid of EBT. Uh, okay. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Um, so, uh, who's going to ask this question? Me or you, Jelani? Next question. So, um, our audience asks, we ask our audience on Facebook and on Twitter to ask us questions as well. Um, and one of the questions was about rent cancellation or rent freeze during COVID-19. Um, because of the economic devastation that so many people have faced, do you support rent cancellation or rent freeze as a way to keep individuals and families in their homes? Stephanie, why don't you take that? Clarification on the question, is it just for the three months or are they asking for a prolonged period of time? Interpret however you want. Well, certainly in the short term. Let, let's just be clear. We need to do something about the rent prices here, period. People need re rent subsidies. P people's salaries have not increased with inflation or the amount of rent that is now considered the medium income because our AMI is all off, which we have to fix. And there's been push to do that, but we have to actually get that done. But let's just talk specifically about the rent freeze. Absolutely during this time, and this is what I said to people, if you can pay your rent, pay your rent. Because there's somebody on the other side of that. There is a landlord who's got to pay their mortgage. But let's talk a minute about the person who does not have a mortgage. They could not get mortgage, mortgage release. And they still had to pay the utility bills so that you could have lights in your hallway and water and your toilet could flush. So we've not asked the utilities who make money hands over fist to contribute during this time. They've continued to send bills. So if, we, if we're gonna look at one part of the chain getting some, some relief, every part of the chain has to get some relief. But we need to make sure that people have ongoing rent subsidies so that when we have situations like this, we don't have to go to the extreme. Um, so I have a slightly different uh, perspective on this. I think we should cancel rent um, until the uh, unemployment rebounds to pre-COVID levels because we can't saddle people with debt related to housing, which is already wildly inexpensive and insecure, um, and leave them struggling with now increased consumer and residential debt post-crisis. Um, now, people say, what about homeowners? So I'm a homeowner, right? I own my home and I have a renter who lives upstairs. And we should do like a concomitant mortgage abatement where we automatically refinance residential mortgages when somebody has one or two or three units. And that's basically the way they pay their mortgage. But I think there's a significant difference between a homeowner who owns a house and rents the top floor and a real estate developer who has hundreds and hundreds of units and potentially pushed out long-term residents in order to accumulate those units. That person made a real estate investment. And when I think about investment, like, 
folks in this country seem to think if they have a lot of money and they make investments, they get all the upside and then they, they, you know, they socialize the downside. Um, and that's unfair. And so I think of those two scenarios very differently. Um, so I, I do think we should cancel the rent. And I do think, yes, we need to do a bunch of things to protect both renters and homeowners in this community in the long term, um, building more low income housing. We talk a lot about affordable housing, but we really need to talk about low income housing. Um, and, and also when it comes to the you know, ownership, we have to stop the deed that thing. Hello. Sorry, I did not unmute myself. Sorry. Okay. Thank you. Um, is there is there an opportunity for rebuttal? rebuttal? Yeah. Go ahead. Go for yes, it. I certainly think that large developers um, have to have more skin in the game, and we need to stop encouraging long, large developments in our community. We just lost lost a long term black owned gas station, the last one in the state, and they're putting another building. Um, in our community, multi-level. We absolutely do not need another multi-level building in our community. And so that's one of the things that we do need to absolutely work on. But there is a difference between, and my answer focused in on the homeowners specifically, because every homeowner is not rich. A lot of the homeowners in our community are elderly and they don't have a mortgage. And I need to hear what's gonna be the relief for them or for somebody who, and believe it or not, owns a home and they may also be li living, you know, check to check in order to make their um, mortgage. They can't afford a protracted, um, you know, rent freeze. And so the state has to kick in subsidies to help those renters so that they can pay their rent so that the homeowners can pay their mortgage. That is necessary in order to keep this going. And in terms of affordable housing, we have to, <laughs> we've built a bunch of units in our community, and I think defaced our community by thinking that everybody wants to live in a vanilla box. If you've lived, if you lived for 60 years, you don't want to be in a, in a box with a bathroom. You want to live in a home. The what, reason why people came to Beverly Stuyvesant and Crown Heights because we have such rich and great architecture. And we're defacing that by saying that we need affordable units that really look like jail, um, jail cells. What we need is to be able to live in a home and be able to afford it. So we have to do something about pricing or subsidies for people who cannot afford to live here so that we can maintain the people who do live here. Thank you. So up to now, we've been focusing mostly on issue areas. I want to pivot a little bit and talk about, I guess, for lack of a better term, geography. So both of you live in Bedford-Stuyvesant, and too often the residents of- Justin, Justin lives in Crown Heights. Thank you. All right, sorry, you know what, <laughs> and I knew that too, so my apologies. Um, strike that from the record. Uh, I, I think the, the, the point is that too often the residents of Northern Crown Heights feel that their issues and concerns do not receive um, enough attention as, uh, do not receive as much attention as the remainder of the district. What are your thoughts about this concern? And what are your thoughts about making constituent services and other things within your purview um, able to uh, address this issue? Who's up first? Who's first? 
Uh, Stephanie. Um, yes, I've had this conversation multiple times. So let's talk about geography. Bedford Stuyvesant makes up the vast majority of geography in uh, in um, the 56th Assembly District. And as such, it is fortunate enough to have both the city, the same city council person, the same state assembly person, and the state state senator and congressman. Unfortunately, Crown Heights does not have that. It's split up in four. And so as we move forward through the census, and I hope everybody filled out their census already because our numbers are low and we have to make sure that we get more money back than we send to the federal government, um, we then will move into redistricting. And we really need to look at how Crown Heights is divided so that people can provide the services to a core group of people. But I have made this a priority. I had my launch in Crown Heights. I'm gonna have an office in Crown um, Heights um, for the remainder of this campaign. Um, and we've been... Just went out again, Stephanie. Yeah. How about now? Okay, you're good. Good. Right. Having conversations with the local merchants, um, with Crown Heights North, the friend of Friends of Barrel Park, all of the groups that operate in Crown Heights about being a part of this entire district. Um, and I know it looks lopsided of Bedside being so big. Cool. Thank you. Uh, Justin? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's, it's an interesting question. I live in the northeast corner of uh, Crown Heights in the Weeksville section. And, um, and I, you know, I think there's like an artificial disconnect because of the way Atlantic Ave divides the community. Um, and I think there's actually a lot of coherence between the two communities. Um, and we should strive for more of that. I think the, a lot of the issues I hear in Bed-Stuy and Crown Heights and Flatbush um, and, you know, Prospect Heights, they're all very similar. And we need to think holistically about solving them on a central Brooklyn basis and not just a neighborhood by neighborhood basis. Um, I want to have core liaisons in each corner of the community um, so that we're not making the mistake of only listening to, you know, who's loudest or who's on our block, right? Um, and so I think that's extremely important too. Uh, and you know, but I think when it comes to understanding and, and seeing what's going on in Northern Crown Heights, I mean, I'm here. Um, I live on Dean Street. Um, folks, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll run constituent services for this part of my, for this part of the community out of my downstairs. Uh, and, and, and folks can come see me in, uh, on the stoop. Thank you. Um, I want to direct a, a question about geography, another question about geography. So are you in support of historical, historic designation? And if so, can you share the circumstances surrounding your involvement with a community seeking landmark designation? What did you do? If, if, if nothing, how do you think you could support this type of initiative? And I'll start with you, Justin. So I spent a, a fair amount of time working on the Save 227 Duffield campaign earlier this year, which candidly is not in district, but I think it, it, it's, it's a valuable um, case in point. Um, 227 Duffield is probably the last house on Duffield Street um, in downtown Brooklyn with a deep, like 
plausible connection to the Underground Railroad. And it was bought up by a developer under, frankly, suspicious circumstances. Um, and they were going to destroy it and turn it into some ugly building that would have be half empty, I'm sure. I'm sorry, my commentary. Um, anyway, um, in that case, you know, we and the organizers working on this issue were working very hard to get the Landmark Preservation Commission to understand that this was history we're talking about. This is abolitionist history we're talking about. And they didn't want to hear it. Um, they were too concerned about things like conforming with the architectural style of the houses around it and the architectural significance. We don't talk enough about like other things outside of architectural significance. We can talk about community significance and historical significance. So um, I, you know, if to the extent that I am interested in participating in and supporting historical designation, I want to know it's about history. I want to know it's about this community's history. I want to know it's, it's actually rooted in something deeper than what the shape of the cornice is or what the window boxes look like. Um, that's, that, that's what I care about. Thank you. Stephanie? I started this conversation saying that I wanted to preserve the rich legacy of Bedford-Stuyvesant and Crown Heights. And this is certainly an issue for anybody who lives in Stuyvesant Heights, I mean, Stuyvesant East, you know that I was actively involved in knocking on your door and asking you to sign those postcards so that we could um, landmark that area like so many other um, areas in um, our community. And um, it was during a time where people were really afraid that landmarking their district was going to mean that they were going to have to spend a lot of money um, in terms of restoring their house to the former um, look of the facade of the, of the building. And they were really concerned that they wouldn't be able to paint and do some other things that they wanted to do. So people resisted and we're not land landmarked. And, and since that has happened, um, we can basically see what has happened to that part of the district and how the other parts that are landmarked are preserved. And so I certainly think that we need to do a, um, a, a better job of having the conversation, starting the conversation again. Um, and I have gone to sign letters to push back on a lot of what the Landmark Preservation um, Commission has done. I mean, I think you, you all know what happened to um, Brooklyn Swirl on the corner of... Um, uh, McDonough and um, uh, Marcus Garvey. So we have work to do in that area, but I do think that it benefits the, the community and for those who lived and live in landmark districts, they absolutely know that it has been beneficial to them. Thank you. So we have just time for um, one or two more questions. There is, this was a, a question about youth. Um, what are your suggestions and ideas to engage youth, um, to engage with youth during this phase of the pandemic? What can be done on the state level? And I will start with you, Stephanie. Well, I've been engaging in youth with youth, having conversations with them about, well, first of all, let's start here. No cancellation of SYEP. I was absolutely outraged about the fact that the mayor made that decision. And let me let you all know, that he was the only mayor in the state of New York who did this. This was not a dictate from the, from the governor or the state level. Other communities are going to have it. We need to have our young people at the table having a conversation about how they want to spend their, their, their summer. There are so many different ways that we could, we could engage youth over the summer, even while social distancing. So for instance, 
there are a number of restaurants that are open and a number of kids who have already um, been involved in some culinary arts um, training. There are another, a number of home-based businesses who could use administrative assistance. We could use the SYAP money to, to pay them while they do that. Young people need to be out and about. We can figure out. We have enough outdoor spaces where young people can be taught social distancing um, and become counselors. Um, our basketball leagues. I mean, we have a basketball league in the in the district that was going to celebrate its 40th history this year, and now it's canceled because we can't reimagine what these outdoor spaces should be. But first and foremost, we need to in, in, we need to engage our young people in the conversation about what it is that they would like to do moving forward, and then we need to bring to bear um, the city and state resources to make it happen for them. Thank you, Stephanie. Justin? When it comes to youth, I do think we need to really think through the lens of like nothing about us without us. And I think too often we make youth policy without actually talking to youth about what they want. And so as an assembly member, I want to actually build a youth cabinet who informs directly the policymaking when it comes to things related to higher ed, K-12, um, parks, um, and recreation, and other youth-facing um, activities in the state. Um, so that's the first thing. Um, second, um, I, you know, I think there's a couple of creative things we can do, um, particularly at a time where we're going to be concerned with social distancing. And we, you know, and, and by the way, completely agree, we need to reinvest in the youth employment program. Uh, I think having real opportunities for youth to learn thing, useful skills for the digital economy. Um, so whether that's graphic design, web design, UX, CX, all of these things that are usually done on a remote basis, now more than ever, we can get youth involved in that sort of work and make sure that they're learning the trades and skills that are actually gonna be super valuable um, in the future. And so I think that's a real opportunity now that we have to consider and think through. Um, and then I think we have to do some creative things this summer. I mean, I was just talking to a woman named Cass Holman, who is a, a toy designer who lives in the community and is a professor at the Rhode Island School of Design. Um, she's actually the one who developed the, the manipulative um, uh, building structures that kids can play with on the High Line in Manhattan. And she and I were talking like, what if we had a bus that went around and stopped on corners in different parts of the, the streets that were closed off throughout the summer with, with construction equipment for little kids? And they could do that. We just need to get creative right now about what's possible in a moment Time. where distance is being enforced. <laughs> Uh, thank you. So we're, this is going to be the last question. Um, and I'm going to, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to wrap up with you each making a, um, a statement. I, what I want us to do is, um, I want you each to say one thing, one pol policy platform about the other that you like. And then we're going to give you 30 seconds after that. So, um, can I read it right from the, from the person who wrote it? It's, it's uh, one of you is going to win, obviously. Please share a policy platform that you respect about the other. What would you incorporate? Would you incorporate this should you? Uh, Justin, you're first. So um, 
Stephanie has done an extraordinary amount of organizing um, with the elders in this community and seniors, and um, I would deeply rely on her advice on all of those issues. And I think that her platform on those things is extremely robust and well thought out. Um, and uh, I would hope that she would uh, be um, generous enough to help me develop my thoughts on those issues. Stephanie, that was pretty generous. What you got to say? Oh, can't hear you, can't hear you, can't hear you. I didn't hear the last part of what he said. Um, I heard something about our elders, so that's always a good thing. So did, did, I'm Justin, for that. Justin, do you, um, want to, do you want to repeat it just so she heard? She, or does it matter? No, well, no, I think, you know, it's elders, we're going to go with it. As long as it's going to benefit them, we're going to go with it. He was giving you props for the work you've do, that you do with seniors. I certainly appreciate that. Um, I can't say that I know what Justin have done in the community, um, but certainly the fact that he's spoken to 15,000 people and he's interested in doing outreach to people and getting them involved in our democracy is a great thing. It is is absolutely time for us all to be in, engaged block by block, and I would say kudos for that outreach. Okay, thank you. So. Each of you have 30 seconds to just wrap up and say, leave us with your uh, comments about how, your vision for Central Brooklyn or what, what, what final thing you want people to know about you as you step off this call. So we'll start with you, Stephanie. Family and friends, we know that we are in unprecedented times but we have seen tough times before, and we know that if we work together, lock our minds, our hearts, and our spirits together, that we can overcome anything and get through this current pandemic. We can recover and our community can be better. I've spent more than a decade in this community working with you side by side as Black Association president, as a member of the NAACP and such want to keep making it happen with you all. Thank you. Thank you. Justin, what would you like to leave us with? So like the dual challenges of recovering from an unprecedented pandemic and concomitant economic recession, and also finally confronting the violent toll of, of brutal policing on our communities is going to require a radically different lens um, for how we invest. And that's what I'm offering as a candidate. Um, I will take, I will raise the issues at the state level and I will push them at the local level where possible because all the things we've talked about that we need to invest in, public education, housing, transit, food security, Time. solar, we can't do it without divesting of other things. Wow, thank you. Thank you for, to you again, Justin and Stephanie, for bravely getting through this. And again, I wanna thank everyone for being on this call. Before we step off, um, a couple of things. One is on Thursday, we will be having a similar conversation among the folks who are running for the 25th senatorial district, state senatorial district. So I just wanna call your attention to that. Um, I wanna thank our partners. Um, first of all, I wanna thank um, Crown Heights North Association and my next door neighbor, Gail. Um, Thank you, Gail. Thank you, Deborah, for being here. Joan with the Brooklyn NAACP, thank you for, for joining us. And of course, Crystal with Prospect Heights, um, with the Greater Prospect Heights Mutual Aid, thank you for, for joining us. Um, again, uh, it's, it's not only important that you sit here for this conversation, but that you go out 
and you vote and that you go to the BMC's website chock full of voter education and voter, voter information, as well as we're going to be having a series of conversations with the candidates, as well as experts from the neighborhood who are going to be talking not only about the issues, but the context in which our politics are, are in today. And I, I really encourage you to look out for that. It's going to be, there are going to be some great conversations.